Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Any Fast and Furious fans out there? Nobody, all right. Well, then we just showed a clip that made no sense to anybody in the room except a couple guys at the back. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> there's like 82 of these movies. I've seen none of them, to be honest with you, but I saw the clip, thought it was pretty good because here he is praying to the heavenly spirit and uh, asking, uh, giving thanks for all of the fuel injectors and the things that make a car really fast. Uh, I don't know a lot about the movie. I do know that the guy that prayed, it didn't work because he lost his car in a race. So it uh, didn't go so well, but he's praying to the car gods, right? Uh, and that, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next two weeks. The fact that we have this tendency 
And we can kind of laugh at it when it's on the screen, or, or we, we, we see, you know, uh, I always run to Talladega Nights and the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. We can create these ideas of, of gods that we pray to, but ultimately those gods are of our own making. And at the end of the day, uh, we pray to gods who we shape so that they will give us what we want. And the Bible calls this problem idolatry. Now, as I grew up, and I, I, hear me as I start this argument, I always thought the core problem of the Bible was our sin. I'm going to freak you out by saying that's actually not the core problem. And a whole bunch of you are like, your heresy meter just went up, didn't it? Okay? But stick with me. Sin is a symptom of a greater problem that is the core problem. And as you actually wade through the Bible, you begin to see that the things that we do, the, the, the sinful actions that all human beings do, even those of us who, who know Jesus, will get pulled into uh, the struggle with certain addictions and certain struggles and certain sinful behaviors, certain attitudes, certain words about people. We, you know, we, we, you know, the Bible tells us not to lie. We all find places to lie. And we do it for different reasons. Usually that's rooted to our idolatry. I'm actually going to talk more about that next week. Uh, but, but what happens is that our central problem starts with the story of Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, when the tempter, Satan, looks at Adam and Eve and the deal he makes about the fruit. We think it's about an apple. So we go read, or a piece of fruit, we go read the story in Genesis chapter 3 of the first human beings sinning, and what they do is we think it's about the fact that they took a bite out of a piece of fruit. But the issue before that is that Satan looks at them and says, listen, God knows this. God isn't for you. He's against you. God's not going to give you what he, what he wants. God is a cosmic killjoy. And if you choose to eat the apple, you will get to be God. You will know what is good and bad for you. You get to be the arbiter of truth. You get to choose your own path, do your own thing. And Adam and Eve choose to do that. And what gets lodged in our heart is this battle over who gets to be God of my life and in this world. And the outcome of that is the fact that because I have displaced the God of this universe, but I am deeply spiritual, I am created in the image of God, now I desire worship, like we are worshipers, and our worship must go somewhere. And, and what happens is that we begin to create and fashion God's because those gods will give us the things that we love and we believe are most important. And the stuff that we do is actually flows, the sin that we have flows from our idolatry. Or in other words, what I'm trying to start by saying this morning is this, the reason you sin is because you have chosen to worship something other than God and your affection and your worship has been shaped by something that was created rather than the creator, and you were giving yourself to that in some way, shape, or form, and you have, to, to do that, we create spiritual pathways and ideas that get us what we want. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. Tim Keller defines idolatry like this. Big definition, it's from his book, Counterfeit Gods. I cannot recommend this book highly enough to you. Go on Amazon, it's not a big read. Go on Amazon or wherever you buy your books and buy this book, give it a read the next two weeks. It will really help you take what we're talking about here and go a little bit deeper. And a lot of the ideas that I will be sharing, I, I pulled from this book, some other Keller things, some John Piper stuff. I mean, a lot of other places where we talk about idolatry, but here's the definition. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart 
and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Think about that. What are the things in your life that you said, if this was taken from me, I could not go on, and therefore, if God takes this from me, I'm out. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, quote, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Um, so what, what Keller's helping us see is that when we open the Bible, the central issue that we have is a love and worship issue, not a behavior issue. When I started by saying sin isn't the central problem, the behavior, the things that we do flow from something else. And it's the fact that in our humanity, our broken humanity, we've attached our affection to something other than the creator. You were made to know and love the true and living God. That's why you're here. That's why you're taking up space. That's why God made you. That's why he, he put the imprint of his image in you, right? And what happens is that we turn, that has been turned inward. And I want to be the center of all that exists I want to be the thing, like, my life is all about me, and what I will do is I will begin to create spiritual pathways so that the world, the universe, the car gods will give me what it is that I want out of life, and if that is taken from me, I will curse those gods or curse the living God because I've made them the most important. Romans 1 tells us that the whole problem in our humanity begins when we cease to give thanks to the God that exists, and we turn our affection from the creator to created things. When we turn our affection from creator to created things, we begin to to give those things spiritual value and worship them. We will end up with gods that will give us those things. This is idolatry. And our affection moves from the creator to the things that he made, and now our spirituality is gonna be shaped by a God who will give us those things. And we now live on a planet where there are billions of spiritual pathways. And, and in the midst of a planet, and in the midst of a culture that tells you that there's no one true way to God, there's no actual way to know the true God, that we are all just, your path, your spirituality, your journey is all that matters. And in the midst of this, there is the call of the gospel that tells us that our redemption is from our idols. The whole Testament story frames it like this and helps us see that for Israel, it was their idolatry that led to their behavior. When they begin to embrace the gods of the other nations, they begin to behave like the other nations, they begin to get involved in all kinds of practices, but it starts by trying to take their God and merge him with the gods of the other nations because those gods give them some of the things that they would like. It's amazing how often those gods are, what what they give is something rooted in sexuality. We're in a culture where sex is the ultimate definer of identity. And you all, that is an idolatry issue. Your identity is not about your sexuality. Sex is a gift from God. It's a created thing. And we worship the the created thing rather than the creator. That's That's an idolatry issue. And so this text we're in, this amazing story with crazy stuff. 
This is one of the hardest passages in all of Bible to interpret and to, to understand because it has three different things that you just kind of want to go, oh man, what does this mean and how do I deal with this? And crazy stuff that comes out of it. But in the midst of it, there is a, a, a major issue of idolatry that is front and center. And for the next two weeks, as we look at Paul's journey to Ephesus, this amazing city and, and this unbelievable work of God that happens in the city you got to understand that what's central and what is happening is that the gospel is confronting this, the, the myriad of spiritualities that are in this city. And Christ is claiming exclusive authority over the lives of people. And at that point, you're either in or out. That's what's happening. And so uh, what's happening in, in, the, in our story, we're studying the book of Acts, amazing New Testament book about the spread of the gospel to the nations, to the world, how, how God promised that, that he would gather believers from every tribe, every people, every nation, every, every uh, family group, and that um, the way this is happening is through the planting of churches, the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation uh, of, of people who go with the message of the gospel. The story for the second half of Acts is followed this guy named Paul, who originally hated Christians and Christianity, but God rescued him from himself. Uh, he, had a very, he had a religious idolatry. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And, and, and God rescued from that and showed him the beauty of Christ. He bowed his knee to Jesus and spends the rest of his life just traveling around the world uh, on these major missionary journeys. And, and he ends up taking three and kind of a fourth one. We'll explain the fourth one in a few weeks as he goes to Rome. But he takes these primarily three major missionary journeys where he goes around what is the Greco-Roman world, especially what we know as modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece, going to the major cities, preaching Christ and planting churches. And last week, our story had Paul going back to his home base. He goes back to Jerusalem, where he fellowships with the church there, uh, kind of the mother church in Acts. And then he goes up. Um, actually, the text tells us he goes down because the way uh, people in the biblical world saw it, Jerusalem was always up and everywhere else was down. So it tells us that he went up to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch. But for us, if you go north, it's going up. So he heads north to Antioch, which was his sending church. And he spends some time there. And then he starts the journey, his third journey again. And last week we saw Paul going from town to town uh, to churches he'd already planted. He'd already been to these cities. But on his way home from the second journey, leaving Greece, he stopped for probably a weekend in Ephesus. And he preaches Christ one time probably there in the synagogue. People who are already coming to faith in Jesus ask him to stay, and he goes, nope, I, the Lord wills me to go this way, and so he doesn't stay. But in the meantime, another pastor, another preacher named Apollos starts preaching in Ephesus, and there's already a growing Christian movement. We see the beauty of this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who invest in Apollos and his discipleship, and they are part of this first church that's in this city. And now it's been a little while, and Paul is continuing this trip. And like always, we got a new map this week. This week we're on Paul's third journey. So what we see is Paul is up here in Antioch. This is where he starts. And rather than jumping on a ship and getting over here to Ephesus, uh, which would have been the quick way, he goes and loves on all these churches and Christians that are in churches where he planted and already pastored them. He just makes sure all these churches. Paul loves the local church. Um, he writes letters to local churches because he wants them to be strong. 
and he takes time, extra time. He travels close to 1,000 miles on foot where he could have hopped on a boat and went this way, and he does it for one reason, because the local church matters to him. What we're doing here is it matters. By the way, a couple weeks ago, you all blessed myself and the other elders with a pastor appreciation. I just want to acknowledge, I, you guys are amazing, and we were so blessed by that. I love this church. We love being here. We're in this crazy hard season of life for us. No more about that. It's just been really, really hard the last several months. And the presence of my peeps, my people, my, 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 my faith community has been huge. The local church matters to Paul, matters to God. And so he takes this journey, but what he does, he ends up back here in the city of Ephesus. It's on the coast, kind of right there. In the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about this. We'll hit the rest of the journey later, but we're going to be talking about Paul's ministry in this seaport of Ephesus where he is preaching the gospel and he is continuing the work of, of gospel advance there, of making much of Jesus there in this port city. Now, it is a massive city. It's the largest city in what is called Asia Minor. Asia Minor is, uh, you can see it up there, the red portion. It's a huge chunk of what we would, is modern day Turkey. The gospel does take a pretty strong foothold because of Paul and eventually because of the apostle John who ends up there. So two of the major followers of Jesus in the first century end up in this region. Um, and uh, it becomes very Christianized and part of it happens here. Ephesus is a massive city. It is the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire, the largest city in Asia. It is the center of commerce. It is a massive seaport, but it had trade routes from Ephesus that went all the way up to almost every other city in Asia. And therefore, um, goods and people passed through Ephesus all this time. But it was what made Ephesus most famous was its spirituality. It has a, a temple uh, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It actually was a larger temple than the temple uh, that was the, the, the Parthenon that was in Greece, that was in the center of the city, the high point of the city, that was the temple to the goddess Artemis. Now, this goes back. The, 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 even the, the, the nations before them had this idea of a mother goddess, a goddess of fertility, a goddess, actually a goddess of the hunt, and a goddess of, of, of success in life. That, that nurtured everybody who worshipped her. And, and Artemis became, the, the city of Ephesus became highly connected to and known for its worship of Artemis. Um, we'll find out next week that there are actually people who came from all over the world to come to uh, Ephesus to go to this temple, to worship this goddess, to interact with, and actually to take little idols of her home and uh, what's really weird, so, you know, sorry, but most of the kids are out of here now. That what made her bizarre in, in the imagery of this goddess is she was a goddess who had a minimum of seven and sometimes as many as 30 breasts, which is just weird, right? But, but what it's showing is the nurturing and, and, and the motherly care of anybody who came to her, her breast, right, uh, is the idea. And um, the city... Its whole identity was rooted in the, this goddess. Now, they worshiped the other gods of the, the Pantheon, Pantheon uh, all the Roman and Greco god, Roman, the Greco Roman gods, which is everything we've just said. They, like, if you ever read the Odyssey and the Iliad and, and had anything on these gods and goddesses, what you have is the creation of gods and goddesses where people will say, 
I want this, I need this, or this whole city would say, this is where our hope lies, and now they would develop a God who would give them protection and favor over whatever issue that they wanted. We found in Corinth that it was a decadent, very sexualized city, and so they, they, they worshiped the goddess Aphrodite as their city goddess. Well, here it is the goddess um, uh, Artemis, and, and they have given themselves to the worship, but what happens out of this is because of the, some of the weirdness of this mother goddess and its worship, they end up in this city with all kinds of spiritualities, crazy religious practices. This is the center of the occult sort of stuff in, in the Middle East at this point in time. Uh, there was a library, one of the three or four largest libraries in the known world at this point in time, but they estimate about a third of the books in this library. About a third of the books in this library were about the magic arts, about you know, crystals and, and seances and calling down you know, demons and speaking to the dead and all this sort of crazy spirituality is wrapped around it. There are actually several uh, 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 museums of antiquity that have collections of the spiritual stuff that came from this city. It was, it was a major part of, of its identity, its understanding, and tourism. People came from all over the world to come visit the Temple to Artemis to see the crazy voodoo kind of stuff that went on, you know, and, and, and get involved in the stuff that was happening in this city. And what happens is that in the midst of this, the Apostle Paul, along with Apollos and these other people, plant the church and start preaching Christ. And God sends an awakening. The gospel explodes in the city. And it comes, the preaching comes with power. It comes like oratory power as Paul is preaching. It comes with miracle power as Paul performs miracles. We see him laying hands on people and they, we have a mini Pentecost. We see like just crazy stuff. And so just a real quick roll through what happens is that in all of this, Paul is addressing the various spiritualities, which are, it's idolatry. It's people creating gods of their own making for the purpose of giving them what they desire. And in the midst of this, the gospel comes and the gospel and the gospel, there is a, a beautiful picture, a, a promise of forgiveness and hope. But in the midst of it, Christ claims sole authority over people's lives. And now there's a conflict. And next week we'll see the conflict go full bore. But there's a conflict because you cannot hold on to your idol and actually give your life to Christ. You must either let go and, and repent and turn from what you've been trusting, the gods of your own making, or run to Jesus and run to Jesus, or you will end up turning Jesus into something else. What we find in the whole scripture is that the pathway to idolatry comes in two different ways. We either reject the living God and just go worship other gods, or we try to take the living God and reshape him to fit our idea of God. There's this crazy story in the Old Testament where the Hebrew people make a golden calf. God has just given them the Ten Commandments. We'll come back to that in a minute. He has just given them the Ten Commandments. And now Moses goes up back on top of the mountain and down on in the valley, what is happening is the Hebrew people, the people who'd just been rescued from slavery in Egypt, who had the sea 
the God of the universe part a sea and they walk through on dry ground. And now they are there. They have heard the voice of God. They have received the Ten Commandments. They have a prophet of God, but that prophet is back on, on top of the mountain. And what do they do in the valley? They go into a drunken orgy is what it is. Where they, and if, I'm sorry, I just used the word. You may have to define your kids. Sorry about that. But anyway, there you go. Ah, and, and what they do in the valley is they break all Ten Commandments while they build a calf. But you got to go read it carefully because they are not in their minds they have not built something that is the worship of the egyptian gods they look at the golden calf and say this is the god who brought us out of egypt they have reshaped god doing what he absolutely what he told them not to do they've created an idol and claimed that this is yahweh the god of the jews so many of us the idolatry we have is not that we, like, if, if I started throwing out different religions, you would reject it wholeheartedly. But what we do is we recast and reshape Jesus to fit what we want him to be. And people of God, lovingly, let me tell you, that is idolatry. It will lead to you having Jesus bless Ideas, practices, spiritualities that are actually condemned clearly in the scripture. God will not have any rivals. And so in the story, here's what happens. Here's the story. Um, Like I said, it's about revival and awakening in the city. God is going to save a lot of people and and come with power. Verse 10, we're, we're told that it's not just in Ephesus that what Paul is doing in Ephesus also spreads to all of Asia. And they hear the word and it goes to both Jews and Greeks. It's accompanied by evangelist success, success, miracles. Even demons acknowledge the ministry of Paul. In verse 20, this section closes with a, a synopsis where it just tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul gets to Ephesus and in the order of the story, the first thing he does is he comes into contact with these uh, about a dozen people who were told are disciples of John. Look at it again here in verses uh, 2 and 3, or verse 1. He says, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and he found uh, some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who had come after him. And this is Jesus. Now, this is kind of weird because then they end up getting baptized again. And there's all this like first question that I'm not dealing with this in the morning is, should people be rebaptized? I mean, is that what the text is saying? By the way, I actually think there are some cases where the answer is absolutely yes, but that's a, a different story. Not the sermon for today. We already did a, a sermon on baptism. But what's key here is that you have these people who apparently were actually baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, who's this really key figure in the first century and in the New Testament. His message was consistent. I am not the Christ, but I'm getting you ready for his coming. I am not the Christ. I'm getting you ready for his coming. I am not the Christ. I'm getting you ready. Come get baptized. Repent and get ready for that moment. Now, if I properly heard John's message and understood what he had preached, my first response should be, 
All right, now that things keep going, I need to go find whoever it is John was speaking about. And there were rumblings about the coming of Jesus in the world. But somehow these people had left the Middle East and ended up in F, or left uh, Israel and ended up probably here in Ephesus, maybe other places. And they were disciples of John the Baptist still, which tells you that they didn't get John the Baptist's ministry. They'd exalted a dude whose whole message was, I'm not the dude. We do this all the time when we have like a, a cult of personality around a preacher or a pastor, um, you know, huge churches who it's all about the individual person preaches. And when that person falls or that person gets older or starts struggling or whatever it is, the church people don't know what to do. Listen, do not follow me. Now, as much as I follow Jesus, follow me, but it's not, this is not Mike's church. Do not place your hope and dreams on anything that I do. We are pointing you to Christ. And if I don't get you to Jesus, or if you don't get to Jesus with your, your pursuit, you're missing the point. And so for these guys, what the gospel does is it looks at their spirituality that is a cult of personality and says, listen, John was about Jesus. And they go, we get it now. They believe in Jesus. They're baptized. There's a mini Pentecost. Paul lays hands and they speak in tongues, which is a, a sign in the whole book of Acts of this initial coming of the Spirit on a new group of people. And we have a mini Pentecost here in, in Ephesus as the gospel reaches these people, confronts their insufficient understanding of the Bible and of the call of God, and they come fully to Jesus. Now, the second, the second group of people, starting uh, here in verse uh, 8, tells us that Paul went to the Jews. He entered the synagogue, and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But then some of them were stubborn and, and uh, uh, <clears throat> some of them were stubborn and uh, continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, here's what's going on now. Now Paul goes where he normally goes. He goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews. And we see from the text that there's a lot of Jews in this town. There was a pretty large contingent of Jews in Ephesus, Jewish people in Ephesus, part of this spreading out of Judaism all over the world. And what Paul preaches here, there are a lot who believe, but there are some who get angry with him. They know the Bible. They are religious. They are, are, are passionate about pursuing the Old Testament pathway to God. They are keepers of the, the, the law. They, they follow the Old Testament rules. But they, they are missing Jesus. And the preaching of Christ comes, and, and the whole message is telling them, we've been seeing this over and over and over, that Paul is telling them that the Messiah they have been waiting for has come. It is Jesus. His death and resurrection is their hope. But what they do is, is instead of turning to Jesus and trusting in him, they get angry and their hearts get hardened. Why do religious people reject Jesus? It's the same reason that secular people reject Jesus. There is a, a very easy way to create a religious approach where you get to be in control of God. You do this by, by saying your prayers, going to church, uh, by, by doing good works, and all of a sudden you believe, like you, you, you may not say it out loud, but in your mind you're like, God, I've done all of this. I've been preaching, I've been teaching, I've been going to school, I've, I've been praying. I was diligent and I prayed. I did not get what I wanted. And, and here comes Paul with a pathway that says you must turn from yourself in any effort to save yourself 
and trust wholly in Jesus. And they go, no, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. We add to our salvation. It's what God does plus what we do, right? That, that's how I get saved. And Paul says, no, it's not. It's faith in Christ alone. And the religious pathway leads to pride where I believe that I'm actually saved by, by something that I've done. It's subtle, but it's there in all of us. And the gospel's going to confront that. We see the gospel confronting idols, the religious idols of the Jews. Third, we see Paul preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, this is, uh, let me make this really simple. You know what Paul did? He planted the church at Ephesus in a school. Does that feel pretty good? That's what the hall of Tyrannus. It is a lecture hall where this guy who is either named or called Tyrannus, and the scholars disagree because his name means tyrant. So either he was a teacher who loved being the tyrant, ruling over people, and, or he was a guy who uh, was you know, such a hard teacher that his nickname was Tyrant, but it got called the hall, hall of Tyrannus. He may have owned it at one point in time or at the current time. But what would happen is every day during the middle of the day, that this was a culture that loved siestas, right? Uh, loved taking that afternoon nap, which I believe is a gift from God. Uh, and so they would get up early in the morning and they would work. And for, and for this guy, he would probably lecture, teach some classes. Then they would take a midday break. And apparently what Paul is doing is Paul is renting this in the middle of the day when it's hot and everybody else is taking a nap. And the Christians and their friends that they're inviting to church are coming during the middle of the day for Bible study. And they're getting discipled and trained every single day. Paul is lecturing and teaching and preaching and proclaiming Christ from this hall. And this early church, this is where they're gathering. And this church is growing and growing and growing. But then what happens is, is in the midst of this, we end up with these crazy miracles where it tells us that not only is Paul preaching with power, but the miraculous is happening. Demons are coming out. And this is one of these passages where, don't mishear me, this is not heresy number two. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and I love that all of Scripture is in here. But I almost wish this wasn't there because... Any way to try to contemporize this will end up with abuse. Tells us that he was taking his handkerchiefs and his aprons, and people were taking them, and just the existence of his handkerchief. Now, what's this going on? Handkerchief probably isn't like the handkerchief you would put in your pocket, although maybe what I ought to do, like I've got allergies right now, and I'm blowing my nose in a lot of Kleenex. Maybe what we ought to do is pull the Kleenex aside and sell those for the building fund. What do you think? Does that work? <clears throat> they're, they're taking... It's probably something he put around his head and it's like while he is doing his trade. So it probably during the business hours, he is continuing to work as a tent maker. And then he's taking a break at midday. And so he takes his, his headband off. He takes off his apron that he keeps kind of his clothes a little cleaner while he's doing his work. And people are grabbing those. And all of a sudden they're in the city and some person who's demon possessed, it's just the sweat from Paul is healing him, Right? Now, what we have in our day is all these crazy, insane, heretical, hear this clearly, people who end up on TV who want to sell you prayer shawls and prayer handkerchiefs. And, you know, there's one guy who's like, if you come to me, I will send you this miracle healing water that they pulled right out of a tap. It, it, it is not, there's no power in the handkerchief. The text is clear that it is God who does the healing. So why does this end up in Scripture? And why does God even do this? Because any attempt to apply this, like if you see me starting to say, all right, we're selling you know, our prayer shawls or we're gonna, we're gonna sell little places on the ground we're gonna give you a, 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 a square and if you stand on this square, God will hear you better. Somebody needs to correct me, right? What's going on? Well, as, as you read the whole Bible, 
what you find is in the whole Bible, there are moments and periods where God's word shows up with power that both vindicates his word and the one who brings it. Happens in the Old Testament with Moses, with Elijah and Elisha, if you're familiar with those stories. New Testament with Jesus. What is going on here is that Paul shows up as an apostle. And, and God is verifying his role as an apostle. As a New Testament proclaimer of the very words of Jesus to pass them on with the authority. And God vindicates his words with these signs. Now again, we already did a sermon on miracles. You can go back and find that from the book of Acts and why are there miracles? Not gonna re-preach that. But in this case, and there are, I believe that God does a miraculous. I don't believe that, that the, the gifts of miracles are over, but there are places where God does crazy stuff like floating axe heads. And his purpose is to say, this guy is from me. You better listen to him. Why doesn't that still go on? Because we now have the whole of scripture that does that. My authority is not in myself. My authority is in the scriptures as your pastor. And the apostles died out with the first generation because one of the keys to being apostles that you had to have hung out with Jesus. And so there's this story, but what we see is the power of God confronting the spirituality of the era, calling people to faith in Jesus, turning from their idols and coming to Jesus. Then, then, then we have the second really bizarre story, and this is the sons of Sceva. Verses 10 through 17, check it out. So here's what happens. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched the skin were carried away to the sick. Then their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now here's what happens. Anybody who sees that wants to mimic that. So what, what takes place? Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. You know what? How, that would be awesome on a business card. <clears throat> what do you do? I'm an, I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Um, Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What's happening here? Well, first of all, remember I told you that the city of Ephesus was full of all of this idolatry, all of this mindset, this attitude that goes on in the, in the first century that, that, that still exists today. There are all these different spiritualities where they are looking for power, they're looking for, you know, for the ability to, to contact spirits and the ability to show their spiritual power. And in, in the midst of all this, there are all kinds of spiritual approaches. Sometimes there is stuff that is real and sometimes there is stuff that is just made up, but for the purpose of proving that you have spiritual power. I've taken several trips to Haiti and everywhere you go in the country, there is stuff with the name of Jesus, stuff with all these Bible characters, and you think, wow, I've come in a nation where everybody believes in Jesus. It is not. It is all voodoo. We were hanging out with my son last night. And he was, uh, we were in, you know, in one of these things uh, at, the, at the zoo. And he was, said, do you know what the difference between poison and venom is? And I was like, hmm. He says, if you bite it and you die, it's poison. If it bites you and you die, it's venom. If it bites itself and you die, it's voodoo. I was like, all right, that's pretty good, right? You end up with all these practices that are rooted in what they always do. This, this has happened all through history. This is why I'm saying be super careful that the Jesus you hold on to is the authentic Jesus of the Bible. Everybody wants to capture Jesus as their homeboy. It's the guy who's on their side. And so what you have is Paul preaching Christ 
You have these crazy Jewish itinerant exorcists, these guys who come from Israel, but they were loved in this part of the world because they would do these Hebrew incantations and they were conjuring spirits and casting out demons and all this kind of stuff. And they, you know, you have these seven sons of Sceva who are part of them. They're in Ephesus and they've got this road show going on. They're gathering crowds. Everybody thinks they're awesome because they're, you know, using Hebrew incantations and exercising demons and laying hands and people are falling over and all this crazy stuff that goes on with this sort of stuff. It, it is psychics and witchcraft and all the things. By the way, I just want to lovingly say, this is a really appropriate message for this time of year. I drive through my neighborhood and there are our whole yards filled with homages. And I know most of the people are just trying to be cute and funny and silly, but homages to pagan spirituality. And we need to be careful about some of this stuff. But what you have here is these guys uh, that are claiming to be a Jewish high priest's son. Now, there's no Jewish high priest that is anywhere in the world known by the name of Sceva. So either Sceva's a nickname or they're claiming something that's not true. And I think it's probably number two. I think Luke is tongue-in-cheek telling us this is what they're claiming. But the bottom, which means they're claiming this spiritual authority from Jerusalem. And what they're saying is, is, in the name of the Jesus who Paul preached, devil come out. But here's what you need to see in this text. There is an evil spiritual element to the world. He is more than willing to show up in any way you want him to. Our idolatry is demonic. And sometimes we get involved in practices that are actually stepping into stuff that is evil. Now, what happens in the text? What happens in the text is just almost, I mean, not almost, it's hilarious. Okay, so here's what happens. They find a demon-possessed man. This isn't even Paul doing this. They find a demon-possessed man, and the demon-possessed man is there, and they, they do this in the name of Jesus who Paul is preaching. And the demon-possessed man, or the demon inside the demon-possessed man, looks at, at the, these seven dudes. So it's seven on one. And they're like, come out, devil come out. And they're using these incantations and the spiritism and all this sort of stuff that is like voodoo. In the name of Jesus, come out. And the guy looks at him and goes, all right, Jesus, I absolutely know. And I'm aware of Paul. That dude, I'm not messing with him. But who are you? And he leaps on him. And now it's seven on one. Can I help you give the definition of how you know you lost a fight? If, if you start the fight and you have pants on, and you end the fight and you do not have pants on, you lost. Like, there's a hockey fight. You know, every once in a while you see a hockey fight, they'll be fighting each other. And one guy will get his shirt and pull it up over his head. And you're like, that was pretty good. But if, can, can you imagine a hockey fight? At the end of the fight, the guy's running around with the shorts of the other guy going, you're like, all right, that guy won the fight. There's no question who won the fight. This is seven on one. And the one beats these guys silly after saying, I know who Jesus is. I ain't messing with his people. I know who Paul is. I'm not going there. But who are you? And then whoops them. And these guys leave shamed and naked. And what the text tells us is that the whole city feared the Lord Jesus. 
That there is a work of God, even in this, God uses the demonic and the, the occult spiritual practices to open people's eyes to the glory of Jesus. And so this whole story is about the gospel confronting, absolutely confronting the idols of its day, the idols of this city. And here's the key to understanding it all. The key to understanding it all here, and we're going to come back to all of this next week, but the key to understanding it all is in verse, uh, verse 7. So let your eyes, if you have your Bible, find this text and pay attention to what's happening here. He says, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn they, and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way. What's going on here? Words in the Bible are not wasted. The, the, the book of Acts started with the promise of the coming kingdom. But it's not a major theme. What we've seen in the rest of the text of Paul's preaching is that he reasoned with, with them from the scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. But there hasn't been all this talk about the kingdom of God. But here in Ephesus, Luke, is in, he chooses his words carefully as he says, Paul is preaching with them about the kingdom of God. And, and we've had this conversation this, in, in here before about what the kingdom is. A kingdom is wherever a king rules. And and to understand a true kingdom, especially especially the kingdom of God, we have to know that there are no rivals. What happens to a follower of Jesus is that they have all these, like we, our hearts are full of idols. This Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory, and that we're pursuing all kinds of spiritualities and approaches to the world. We create all these gods that are giving us the things that our hearts desire. We have turned the created thing into what we worship rather than the creator. We are worshipers. And listen, here's the problem with idols. You at this moment are moving towards whatever it is you worship. If you have a sex god, you are moving towards a version of yourself that is over-sexualized. If you have a food god, you are moving towards idolatry and, and, and activities and, and actions that are in that vein, okay? Uh, if you have a money and a power god, your whole life is defined by this. And what you, will, you are moving towards the object of your worship and affection. And in the midst of all this, what, what there is is a, a king who loves you, who gave his life for you, that is saying, lay down your life and follow me. And the kingdom of God is making a claim on you and me. And the claim is to turn from whatever it is I trust in and what I think gives me my identity and sense of purpose and meaning in life to turn from that and to turn my eyes and lift my chin to see Christ alone. And in lifting my eyes and seeing him, I have my affections, my passions, my hopes and dreams are now rooted in Christ and I trust him fully. And Christ may choose to give what I pursue and long for, or he may choose not to, and he is still good, and he is still king, and he still knows what's best. And my hopes and dreams are now fulfilled, not in giving me everything I want in this world, but giving me that which is better. Idolatry will kill you. It will kill you. There's this lady who was writing for this newspaper or this magazine called The Village Voice in, uh, 
uh, New York. It's about New York and, and celebrity and all this sort of stuff. And she names three famous movie stars. And she's not a Christian. She's writing about idolatry, though. I'm not going to name the stars, but I will read the quote. I pity celebrities. No, I, I really do. These three people, and they were very well-known, most famous of, of celebrities, were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see these three people wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of these people became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, the fame, that, fame thing that they were going to make, that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them their, with their personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them into how, turned them howling and insufferable. Idols cannot save you. They cannot satisfy. You will either spend your whole life pursuing that which isn't enough, or you will, God may choose to give it to you, and that may be the worst thing that could happen in your life, that God actually gives you your idols, and you will find that they will just turn to mush in your hands. And what happens in the text is beautiful because it tells us that people who believed do this major book burning. Now, this again is not to be followed as something that is always done, but what's happening? They're taking the, the spiritual books worth thousands and thousands and thousands, like maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they're bringing their old spiritualities and laying it and saying, I no longer am, am, am following this, I am trusting Christ. And they repent and they turn from it in a very demonstrable way. The only way to have our idols displaced is to find something and someone who is better. And his name is Jesus. Amen? And we constantly, like our hearts are idol factors. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you have idols that are drawing you. You have things that you believe give you a sense of purpose, meaning, value in life that aren't really connected to God. You will start reshaping Jesus so that he is the one who gives you those things rather than trusting in him solely as your king. And so what we do is we come to communion as a reminder that it was a bloody cross that bought our salvation. It was sacrifice and Jesus giving himself away where hope was given to us and it is a call to follow him, right? And so we'll celebrate communion in a moment. And for all of us, listen, communion is a time to repent and, and 100% of us in here, that means there are issues of idol, idolatry. There are idols of our heart that we need to, for a moment, place in our hands and let them go before we come to the table. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the band's coming up here. Uh, we're going to have one of our elders prepare us for communion. And as they come up here and we do communion, it's going to be an opportunity for us to surely, uh, for you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, to pause and ask yourself uh, who this Jesus is and, and realize that this king is worth it. And so we want you to take a few minutes to do that.
But here in just a minute, we're all going to stand, we're going to celebrate communion together, we're going to worship together, we're going to sing together, and it is a chance for all of us in this room to do what they did in Ephesus, which is take the things that we love most, and we believe that God ought to give us, and that we actually have turned into objects of our worship, and to place them at the foot of the cross, and to find Christ together, all right? John, lead us in in our, our communion.